Okay, open up your Bibles at Acts chapter 8 from verse 4. As Brenton has already alluded to, we've been going through this series, Sent, and we've been going through the book of Acts, and we're in Acts chapter 8 verse 4 this morning. So Acts chapter 8 from verse 4. Okay, Acts chapter 8 from verse 4, and I'm going to read from the ESV. It'll be on the screen for you if you don't have a Bible, but if you do have one, please have it open with you. We're going to be working through this. You know, last, last week, what was that? It was like 60 verses, just the one chapter, plus another five or so on either side. And I came to this one, and I think, man, this one's so short, it's going to be so easy. And yeah, I got smashed. I only kind of feel like I landed it somewhere on Friday. So, chapter 8, verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this journey that you have taken us on in the book of Acts as we see you just 
ruling and reigning and advancing your church. And, and we come upon a pretty special moment uh, in the history of your church. And, and we want to understand that there's quite a bit of stuff in here that, that might um, kind of contradict and go against the things we believe and hold to. And we don't want to shy away from it. We don't just want to skip this part of the Bible and move on. We want to wrestle with it. And so would you give us clarity? And we pray, Holy Spirit, to you, the one that inspired these words, the one who we need to have our eyes opened uh, and our hearts renewed. Would you please be at work in us this morning? We pray this for our good and for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, we titled our series, Sent, uh, not simply because uh, we were watching Jesus and his first disciples sent out to witness to him. Uh, That is true. We also titled it Sent because we too are sent once. Uh, We're part of the story, if you like, as, as, as we witness to the risen and reigning Lord Jesus to the end of the earth here in Perth and where we live. If you like, it's almost like Jesus is still writing chapters of his act as the reigning and Lord Jesus. That's not in here, but I can't wait to get to heaven and hear of the things that he's been doing. Uh, so, so today, what I want to do as we look at this ascent ones, I want to use this passage to equip us in witnessing to Jesus. We haven't really done that much, and, and you've got to be careful to do that in the book of Acts, but I want to do three things. I want to look at the do's, and the don'ts, and the danger as we witness to Jesus. So let's start with the do. What we must do is this. Speak the truth of God's word about His Son in the power of the Spirit. We must speak the word of God's Son, Jesus, in the power of His Spirit. Now, do you remember a few chapters back in chapter 6, verse 4, how the, the, the apostles devoted themselves to the ministry of the Word and of prayer. Well, that's essentially what we must do in short. We, we share God's Word with people, and we do it in dependence upon Him and the work of His Spirit as we pray. So let's quickly tackle those two things briefly from our passage. So firstly, we need to speak the Word. And that's very clear from our passage, because speaking the Word... Uh, begins our passage, it also finishes our passage and kind of bookends it, but it's also right at its core. Look there at the beginning from verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and he proclaimed to them the Christ. Remember last week, uh, essentially all hell broke loose in Jerusalem towards the church with, with severe persecution everywhere. And Brenton read a bit of that for us earlier this morning. And so people fled. People fled to Judea and Samaria. And we saw that was part of Jesus fulfilling his great plans and purposes. And you know what they did? They, they went into hiding and, and they thought, look, let's just let the dust settle a bit. You know, this is also a great time for us to get to know our culture a bit and get really savvy about what people think. And then we can tell them perfectly, just nail it, how to share Jesus with them. But that's not what they do, is it? They, they just went about preaching the word as they went immediately. What word is the question? But we see there with Philip that he proclaimed to them the Christ. This is the word of God's promised, long-awaited and chosen king. But also have a look there at the end of our passage in verse 25. 
So this is the end of it. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So you've got these two apostles that, that came down from Jerusalem uh, to Samaria, and they're speaking the word of the Lord and testifying to Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection that they witnessed with their very own eyes. They're speaking it to the people as they were there. But also, as they return back home, Every village that they go through, they do this as well. And so what's the gospel that they preached? Well, have a look there in the middle of our passage in verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news, there's the word gospel, about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. You see, the gospel is the good news about God's kingdom that's dawned on us in the person and the arrival of his chosen King Jesus. And it's great to hear that God has a kingdom. I don't know if you've thought about this. When I was reading this, I thought, man, it's great that God has a kingdom. And there's more to, to this world than we can, that we can see with our eyes. I was just saying this to Beck this morning as we're getting ready to unpack the dishes and put dishes back in. And I said, how silly. Pack the dishes, take the dishes out, pack the dishes, cook the food, eat the food, pack the... It's like, what? It's so mundane. But in the light of God's kingdom, this is good. I don't know if you've ever thought that question. Gee, there must be more to life than this. More to doing dishes. More to changing nappies. More to just doing another project at work and another project and another project and another project. More to life than just going to the doctors and getting the right medication. The good news is that there is more to life and it, and, than meets the eye. God has a kingdom and he has revealed it to us in Jesus. Jesus is the king of the kingdom who has, who has brought about the kingdom in part and he will bring it in its fullness one day when he returns again. And the best news is that you can be part of this kingdom. You know, this, this pure kingdom, you can be part of it even though you're not pure. This, this, this kingdom that's pain-free, you can be part of it even when you're hurting. This kingdom that will last forever, you can be part of it even though you're a mortal that, that has a temporary lifespan. You see, all you have to do is trust in Jesus, trusting in his kind of past death in your place and his present rule over you. He's dealt with your sin. He's dealt with everything that disqualifies you from entering the kingdom and being Part of it, he has dealt with it in his death on the cross. And this is the word, the, the truth of God's word about his son that we need to speak as we witness to our world. And secondly, as it says there in the second part of that line, we need to do this in the power of the Spirit. Now remember this verse, we've pretty much put this up every week. It's probably ingrained into your brain by now. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 but you, this is Jesus speaking, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. We cannot be witnesses of Jesus without the power of his spirit. You see, everyone that's witnessed truthfully to Jesus in the book of Acts did it by the power of the spirit. The apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit. We see that in chapter 2. Then uh, last week, we, we see Stephen and actually Philip today are all filled with the Spirit. We see that in chapter 6, verse 3. 
But, but it's not only the speakers that need the power of God's Spirit to speak God's Word. It's also the hearers. This is because we have uncircumcised hearts that need to be changed, as we saw last week. Our dead hearts need to be made alive. We were physically born into this world and into this kingdom, if you like, and we need to be spiritually born into God's kingdom by His Spirit. As Jesus said in John chapter 4, verse 23, He said this, True worshippers worship the Father in spirit and in truth. See, both those things. We must speak the word in the power of the Spirit because that alone makes people true worshippers of God. That alone can save people. That alone can transform people. Now, I could probably stop here at this point, move on to point two, um, but I want to share with you a passage from the Old Testament uh, that I think portrays this really vividly, and you could probably think of it right away as I say that. Ezekiel chapter 37 from verse 1 to 14. You have to go read it this week. Please do. So in Ezekiel 37, God takes Ezekiel and he goes and puts him in a valley. And, and it's not a pretty valley. It's not, you know, like they've got a nice stream of water with green and life everywhere. He puts him in a valley and it is filled with dead bones. Dead bones of people. And they dry. So they're really dead. And they've been dead for a long time. And God commanded Ezekiel. He says, go and prophesy to these dead bones, Ezekiel. Go and share my word of life to them. And would you believe it? He does it. If it was me, I think, gee, Jesus, like they're dead. They're pretty dead. But he goes and he speaks this life-giving uh, word of God to them. And would you believe it? As he's preaching or as he's prophesying or speaking, whatever word you want to use, he can hear this rattling noise. And it's the bones clashing against each other as they're coming together. And he looks up and he, and he sees sinews coming all over the bones where they join. And, and then all of a sudden they're covered in flesh and the skin comes onto them. And he's got these bodies that are there, but there's no breath in them. They're still dead. They're just freshly dead in a sense now. And so God tells Ezekiel to speak to the Spirit, he's to God's Spirit. He, when you go and read Ezekiel 37, it talks about God's breath, which in that word in the original language is also the word used for spirit. And so Ezekiel speaks to God's Spirit and he says, please come and fill these bodies. And he does. And the bodies get to their feet and they're alive fully. What a picture, isn't it? And this chapter of Ezekiel shows us something powerful, that God's people can only be made alive by his word and by his spirit. And, and I think as churches, we tend to be on one side or the other of those. You've got churches who focus on the word. You know, they're teaching it strictly. They're teaching it purely, maybe even a bit lifelessly. And then you've got the other side who, who focuses on the Spirit. Uh, and, and they've got very little teaching, if any at all, from the Bible at least. Uh, and there's not a lot of purity. But man, they seem alive. Everyone's buzzing when they get together. And neither of these options are biblical. As we witness to Jesus, we must kind of do both. We must do so in the truth of His Word and by the power of His Spirit. And if we only hold on to one of those, we don't actually hold on to either of those. And so we need both. That is what we must do. We need to speak the truth of God's word about His Son in the power of His Spirit. So what about the don'ts? What, uh, what we don't do 
We'll look at these two things, and I think these are the, probably the controversial things in the passage. We don't give the Holy Spirit, or we don't pursue signs and wonders. You see, the obvious question I think that this passage raises for us is this. How do people receive the Spirit? I mean, the word's pretty easy, right? We've got it here. I can give this to people. But how do people receive the Spirit? Well, have a listen there to verses 14 to 17. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and he prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. You see, from from these verses, it seems that there are this kind of two stages to becoming a Christian, or maybe even two levels. And some churches talk about the second blessing, they call it. And and they get it from this passage and maybe one or two others. The, The idea is that you hear the good news of Jesus, you believe it, you're baptized, and wow, God has blessed you. You're a follower of Jesus. But then there's a second blessing uh, that's available, where, where after you've received the gospel and, and you believed in it and you've been baptized, you can also receive the Spirit, like in our passage. The apostles came to those who received the good news of Jesus, they were baptized, and they laid their hands on them, and only then did they receive the Holy Spirit. And some people, the churches that do this, they say, well, this is a normal pattern that every single Christian needs to go through but I don't think that's quite right. I think this second blessing idea is, is unbiblical at, at best. And we must not do it. We do not need some super Christian to come after us every time we witness to someone about Jesus. To come and lay their hands on them. I mean, that'll just be weird, first of all. If you're working around your workplace and you're thinking, who can I share? And there's a guy like following you the whole time. Like when, that one, should I lay hands on him? Like it'll just be weird. But we don't need that. We don't need anyone to give the Spirit by the laying on of hands. And let me tell you why. First reason, what happens in our story is not normal. This is not normal. We're into chapter 8 of Acts. It's, it's almost a third of, a, of the way through, and this is the first time it happens. And it's un, it only happens two more times in the whole book at really key places. One of them is when the Apostle Paul gets converted. Uh, and, and what we've had here is we've got 5,000 men, Uh, earlier in in the book, uh, together with uh, women and children. So probably about 10,000 people who became followers of Jesus, and and this didn't happen to any of them. 10,000 people, and this wasn't done to them. Straight after our passage, if you keep reading, we're not going to look at this, but Philip um, shares the gospel with the Ethiopian, and he believes, and he stops him straight away, says, there's water, I want to get baptized, and he baptizes him. And the, the, the apostles don't come running in the back. Hey, guys, hold on. Oh, it's a lot of dust. And we've got to lay our hands on him. You don't hear about them at all. The story just moves on. And so this is not normal. Secondly, this is not prescribed, okay? So, so um, but it's, it's a description. In other words, we're told what happened, not what must happen. This is a, this is a story. It's not a command. And Tony spoke a few weeks back about, you know, prescription and description and and how hard it is to work it out in the book of Acts. And one of the ways we get clarity on whether it is prescriptive or descriptive is to look at what's going on in the rest of the Bible. So right here um, in Acts, we've got Peter and John who's giving the spirit to the laying on of hands. Later on, Paul does it. 
between those three guys, they, they, they wrote 18 books of the New, New Testament. It's quite a significant amount. And would you believe it? Not once does this come up. That's a bit odd. If this is such a big thing and it's normal, surely it'll come up once maybe in 18 books, but not once. And particularly important is, is Paul's three letters uh, to Timothy and Titus, where he writes to these pastors and tells them how to establish and kind of uh, maintain an orderly church as pastors of their churches. And this is not mentioned at all. You'd think it would go in there, wouldn't it? So what is going on then? (laughs) Well, something special is happening in God's grand plans and purposes. and, And that special thing is this. God is bringing in the Samaritans into his fold of people. The Samaritans. Now remember, the Samaritans were like second-rate Jews at best, at best. They, they, they were kind of Jewish, but they were sinful and unacceptable. So it's like, well, are they really Jewish then? The Jews didn't like them. They, they couldn't get along. It was like, it was frowned upon to even speak to any of them. And, and, and probably in some way as well, they didn't follow all of the Old Testament. So they had some people that said, oh, no, no, we don't listen to that guy. We listen to this guy. And so who, who, who the people were that were shaping them through the Scriptures uh, were divided. And so I think Peter and John came, and this is not in the text. This is just me trying to look at God's big story and work out the answer to this tricky passage. I think Peter and John came to lay hands on them to show the unity between the Jews and the Samaritans that's found in the church of Jesus Christ. You see, no, no one can, no Jew can say to a Maritan, ah, well, you know, you, you heard what, what Philip said, but, you know, we, we heard it from the apostles themselves, you know, the real witnesses of Jesus' life. No, no, no. Both of them heard it from the apostles. And, and none of them can say, well, 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 we got the spirit from the apostles themselves. You got it from, well, I don't know how you got it. Maybe you don't even have it. No, both of them got the apostolic word and Jesus' spirit from the same People. And so there is no division. There is unity. That's a, one of the reasons. The other reason I think this is so special is because God's people are all of a sudden one kingdom again. Do you remember uh, how the Samaritan thing all started? You, you had God's people that were a single people with, with David and Solomon and others who were kings over them. But then the kingdom split. And, and you have the northern kingdom um, called Israel, and Samaria was their capital city. And then you have the southern, um, southern kingdom that were called Judah, and their capital was uh, Jerusalem. And so uh, God promises in the Old Testament to unite these two kingdoms again one day uh, as one kingdom with one king ruling over them. And do you know where God promised this? In Ezekiel 37, would you believe it? Right after the Valley of Dry Bones. So I wonder if there is this kind of clear two-step process in Samaria where Philip shares the word and they receive it, and then the apostles come and they validate that word and they give them the spirit to make people go, oh, where have I heard that before? (gasps) Ezekiel 37. And that's also where God says he's going to unite the two kingdoms together. So it should remind them that just as God will make his people alive by his word and by his spirit, so he will also unite the southern southern and the northern kingdoms as one. And our passage shows that this has happened under King Jesus. 
through the preaching of his word and the power of the Spirit by his followers. So that's the first part, is we don't give the Holy Spirit. I mean, Peter says it later on, this is the gift of God. We don't need someone to lay hands on to receive the Spirit. There is something else in our passage also that we don't do. The second don't. And we've seen this quite a bit, and that's why I thought I want to address it. And that's the idea of signs, the, the signs and wonders that has come up many times in Acts. We saw it most recently last week with, um, uh, with, uh, with Stephen in chapter 6, verse 8. And we also see it today in Philip. Look there at verse 6. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. You see, people paid attention to Philip not simply because of what he said, his message, but because of the signs. And you might think, no wonder when I share the good news of Jesus with people, they don't accept it because I, I don't have any signs. You know? I need to, I'm not wowing anyone with any signs. And if you think this way, you'll always feel like some sort of inferior witness to Jesus. And, and maybe you'll just give it up altogether. Say, man, I've never done anything impressive. No one's going to listen to me. But we have to remember what the signs are for. And I don't have time to go into all of this, but I, I can just state it. We have to remember that the signs and wonders were not a new thing in the early church. It's something that God has done in the Old Testament as well to validate and authenticate his spokesman. You see, for much of the Bible, we've got it all written down. But as God was dealing with people in history, it wasn't written down anywhere. So God had to show, hey, you need to listen to this guy and not to that guy. And so he did signs and wonders through them uh, to authenticate uh, his messengers. Uh, you think even um, last week we read of Moses uh, in, in, in chapter 7, verse 36, how he did signs and wonders for 40 years. And that was to validate him as a spokesman to, to the Israelites, but also to Pharaoh. Even Jesus did signs. We saw this in Acts chapter 2. Look at this. Uh, this is Peter speaking. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. You see, God validated Jesus through wonders and signs. And, and, and that's why Jesus says in John chapter 10, he says, even if you don't believe me, what I'm saying, that I am the Son of God, believe the works. Hey, these works are pointing to the fact that I am from God. And just as God validated Jesus, so Jesus validates his apostles and those directly linked with them, like Stephen and Philip, to show that they are his authoritative spokesmen. So back then, like I said, there was no script to follow. None of this was written down. And so you didn't really know who to trust or listen to. And so God had to do this. And here God was doing something brand new and historical and redemptive history. And so he needed to make clear who to trust and who to listen to. But that's not the case for us. You see, the, the apostles and those directly linked to them uh, that Jesus validated through signs and wonders, well, we've got all of their writings already. And that's sufficient, the Bible teaches us. And so as we witness, we don't need signs and wonders or anything to be validated. Well, I think the biggest sign that you're a valid spokesman of Jesus, if you, if you have this with you, and you actually open it up 
and preach it as the single word of God and see how it all fits together and particularly how it points to Jesus. When, when preachers don't open the Bible and they don't teach every single part of it in a way that points people to Jesus, the risen and reigning Lord Jesus, we'll get another preacher to follow. Find another church. And the same goes for us as we witness. We don't need signs and wonders or the laying on of hands to give the Spirit. We, we need to preach the Word of God by the power of the Spirit, all pointing to the gospel of Jesus. And we do it through prayer. So that's our don'ts. So we've looked at what we do, what we don't. And then lastly is the danger. What danger should we avoid? And it's that there. Having a verbal and outward faith alone without a changed heart that's right with Jesus. As I did last week, I want to finish with us looking at our own hearts as this passage leads us to. There's this kind of interesting incident, isn't there, between Peter and Simon uh, that should leave us checking our own hearts. Look there with me from verse 21. Peter says to Simon, You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before the Lord. Repent, therefore, this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. It's very clear that Peter doesn't see Simon as part of them, and it's because his heart is not right with God. He's still living in wickedness. He needs to turn to Jesus. He needs to repent, and he needs to receive forgiveness. Later on, it talks about him um, being um, in iniquity, still living in iniquity. Now, this is clear and simple, isn't it? But it gets a bit confusing and complex when we remember what's already happened to Simon. Have a look at verse 13. So as Philip was preaching, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Wow. Okay, so Simon heard the gospel uh, and he believed in such a way that people thought it was true faith and they baptized him. And after that, Simon even continued to follow Philip. And, and you have this kind of shift from, from Simon amazing people with his magic, magic in verse 9 to being amazed by the great miracles God was doing through Philip. And so here's the big danger that we have to avoid. We need to avoid having herbal an outward faith alone without a changed heart that's right with Jesus. If we don't avoid this, we can, we can look fine on the outside to people, but you know, we could be following the crowds as they witness to Jesus without actually being part of those who are witnessing to Jesus, only to be told at the end that your heart is not right before God, unforgiven, full of wickedness. It's interesting at the end, in verse 25, Simon actually asked for Peter to pray for him. But we never know if, if Peter prayed for Simon the way he wanted him to. We never actually know if Simon repented and turned to Jesus, sought forgiveness the way that, that Peter encouraged him to. And it leaves his question, this question of his standing before God, open-ended. And I think Luke is in doing this intentionally so that we can read ourselves into the story and ask the question, is my heart right with Jesus? Am I just in the crowds thinking we're doing this together, witnessing to Jesus, but I'm not? Have I actually turned to him 
with all that I am? Or just outwardly to fit in with those Christians around me? Have I actually received forgiveness from Jesus or am I still living in wickedness instead of living in his grace? As you wrestle with these very important questions, you might have another one that pops into your head, which is, well, how do I even know the answer to these questions? What do I look for in myself? Well, what you look for is this. Have a look at who is at the center of your Christianity. Is it Jesus or is it ultimately you? You know, for Simon, he was at the center of his world before he heard about Jesus. And he was still at the center of his world after he heard about Jesus. Nothing changed. Things changed on the outside, but not on the inside. And I want to show that to you. Look with me there from verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. You see, when, when Simon was practicing magic, he was the man. He was the man. People had their eyes fixed on him. He was the center of attention. Uh, he was amazing. He was very highly thought of by everyone. Uh, and notice also how full of himself he is, actually. He doesn't let people tell you know, other people that he's a good magician. He just says to everyone else, hey, I'm really great. You know, he doesn't wait for them. Now, hey, let's not be too serious or too critical about Simon because we're all like him, aren't we? We're all self-centered, thinking that the world evolves around us. We're all at the center of our own decisions. But when Jesus comes along, he rightfully takes that place. If we see him rightly and respond to him rightly, he now all of a sudden is the ruler. Because he's the ruler of, of everything, right? Remember how he's the one that's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And we've seen this in Acts, but we don't seem to see this in Simon. Look there from verse 18. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. You see, Simon wanted to buy the Spirit so that he can give it to anyone he wanted to. Initially, you think, oh, that's nice. He wants people to receive the Spirit. But ultimately, I think what it gets down to is that he wants to do it for his own glory to anyone that he chooses to do it to. He doesn't want to be used by God to give the Spirit to those people who trust in Jesus. No, he will decide because he wants to amaze people, as he always has, and keep being the center of attention. He wants to use Christianity as a religion to serve him and to make him great. It's so dangerous because it can look so good on the inside, but your heart is not right with God. So what, what might this look like for us, like if we bring it home? I think if Simon was here, he, and if he was on the band, for example, he would want a spot in every song where he gets to have some sort of solo, whether it's singing or be at the front and do a riff on his guitar or, or something. And, and he's not, he might not necessarily be there to help people sing God's praises, He's there so that people can sing his praises after. Oh, man, that riff was so good. You're the man. Or if Simon was here, he would probably struggle, I think, to serve anywhere in our church because we love to serve in teams. And, and, he, and as you know, the old saying, there's no I in team. 
Um, you know, but he won't want to do that. He, he won't want to do what's best for the ministry, what's best for the team, because that means he can't just do what he feels like in the moment and, oh, here's an opportunity to look good. No, 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 Simon, we're not, we're not living like that. We're looking at what's best for everyone. I reckon he'd struggle. Um, but as, as Simon would be, I reckon he'd probably be one of the worst team members, but he'd be telling everyone how great he is. Hey, guys, I'm carrying this team on my back every Sunday. That's what he would look like, I reckon. Or imagine if Simon was a preacher. This is one that I've had to wrestle with. He would hate if, if, if after a sermon someone came to him and said, man, thank you so much for showing me Jesus in that passage. I've never seen him like that in that passage. And you know what? I love him more for it now. Thank you so much. I reckon he'd be pretty flat if someone said that to him. He would want people to tell him, man, you're a great preacher. Poh, you're so charismatic. You're just, you're just such a good speaker. You, you're a blessing to this church. Simon, that's what he would want, I reckon. So do you see how dangerous it is for your faith to be like Simon? Your, your salvation is at stake. Your, your, your joy is at stake. Your effectiveness in the gospel is at stake. And so is your faith, is your serving and your witness about you or about Jesus? Are you a follower of Jesus because of the perks or for his praise? I want to leave you with that. Just sit and think about that for a while. Let God do some work on your heart. Be honest and real with him. And I'm going to get the communion table ready and then we'll partake in communion together.